You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week. World This Week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3CR. .org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Tosco. I'm hosting today's program. You wonder what anarchy is all about? No, it's not what's happening in the world today. An anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power, which are based on equal distribution of wealth. It's a simple concept. Anarchos, without rulers... How do you create a society without rulers? You devolve power, you share power, and you share wealth. Look, I'd like to start off the program by extending my sympathies to Ken Mooney and his family. Uh, Josephine Ann Mooney uh, died on the 14th of August. She was well known in uh, radical circles, uh, especially in Melbourne, Victoria. She was aged 82. She died of renal failure in the Sunshine Hospital. uh, there was no funeral because of the uh, COVID-19 situation. Uh, and I'd like to extend my uh, sympathies to Ken, a husband of many years. They're four children, nine grandchildren, one, one great-grandchild. Uh, Ken uh, will be holding a celebration of her life at the uh, Unitarian Peace Memorial Church once the COVID-19 restrictions are removed, which I assume it will be sometime next year, to which uh, all those who knew Josephine are invited to. Uh, Josephine was born in 1938, so that's Josephine Ann Mooney, and died on the 14th of August, 2020. All right, let's move on. I've um, been a little bit uh, amazed, and when you're nearly 70, it takes a lot to amaze somebody, especially somebody who's been around as long as I have. But I've been amazed by the levels of cynicism which are developing in the community, especially in the uh, Melbourne region of Victoria, because obviously I'm not familiar with the rest of the country, although we broadcast across the country by the Community Radio Network. And what, what amazes me is that deep level of cynicism. And I'd just like to remind people that cynicism is the aphrodisiac of those who exercise power They want us to be cynical. They want us to think that challenging uh, the state is impossible. They want us to think that uh, challenging the current economic situation, challenging the corporate world is impossible. 
Um, cynicism is, is the bread is their bread and butter. If you've got a cynical population who believes that change is impossible, then it becomes a passive population. And an anarchist struggle and a democratic struggle because they're both interlinked because anarchism is about giving as many people as possible the ability to make decisions concerning their lives. That's what the devolution of power is. That struggle is interlinked. And having a very depressed, uh, not even angry, just depressed, accepting, cynical population really is giving them an ace. It's giving them an ace in a poker game. It's you know it's giving them the winning uh, horse in a horse race because cynicism is the very antithesis of what we stand for. We stand for change. We stand for radical change. We stand for making major changes to life. We are part and parcel of that long, long history uh, around the world about people trying to fight, to organise, to get involved, to be active in order to change what is happening. If we had not, if we were, were not in that situation today, if we hadn't been, if those people before us hadn't been involved in those struggles, we wouldn't be enjoying the fruits of those struggles. You know, hundreds, thousands of years later, you know, we'd still have slavery in this country, and it just goes on and on and on. So cynicism is the aphrodisiac of those who exercise power. They want you to be cynical. They want you to think that change is impossible. They want you to think that you can't fight City Hall. They want you to think all these things because once you become cynical, change is impossible. I mean, it's uh, having a passive, cynical population is exactly what people who exercise power want. I mean, if you do that, you can use fear to exercise power, but a much more effective uh, way of exercising power than using fear is using hopelessness uh, in terms of people thinking that everything is hopeless. And it is not hopeless. If it was hopeless, I wouldn't be wasting my time broadcasting on community radio by the community radio network. You know, I wouldn't be wasting my time. Change is possible. Change will occur. It'll occur... Uh, irrespective of uh, how cynical people become because there will always be small groups of people who um, who don't, uh, who are not cynical. Obviously, we're cynical regarding the current situation, but we're not cynical about the possibility for change. And that change is happening around the world as people challenge those who exercise power over them. Sometimes those challenges succeed. Sometimes they're derailed. Sometimes they fail, but those challenges continue and they only continue because people are willing to resist. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. I think another reason there's so much cynicism in the community, not just because of COVID-19, not just because of the monopolisation of power by unaccountable corporations whose major... Uh, reason for existence is to uh, improve the outcome of their uh, shareholders, you know, the lives of their shareholders. I think that this major cynicism it revolves around the lack of lack of ideas. It seems that reason and logic no longer matter in the 21st century world. You'd think in a world which is connected, a world with Twitter, 
social media, Facebook, you name it, it's all out there. TikTok, it's all out there. Instant communication, instant information at people's fingertips, instant ability to criticise anybody you like, any time you like, and the list goes on and on. You'd think that there would be a much more positive outlook. And that positive outlook doesn't exist because we seem to have lost the capacity for logical thinking. I noticed that as I broadcast that the World Health Organization has said that polio has been eradicated from Africa. Now, those who are old enough and those who are involved in healthcare, like I've been for over 45 years, will know people who've had polio. And polio was a horrific disease in Australia in the 1950s where young children were struck down with polio and uh, some died, some went on ventilators for the rest of their lives. Some uh, lost the function of their limbs. And uh, obviously there are still survivors of those epidemics in the 1950s. The reason polio has been eradicated is very simple. It's been through vaccination. The reason it's eradicated in Africa is very simple, through vaccination. The reason smallpox has been eradicated around the world and smallpox killed hundreds of millions of people over the centuries is because of vaccination. But we seem to have forgotten logical reasoning. It seems that uh, with this vast amount of information at our fingertips, that people shift this chaff looking for little, little gleam, little glimpses of gold in order to reinforce their uh, illogical concepts. So it's a real problem when you've got a cynical population, when logic's gone out of the area, when reason is no longer at debate, when we have world leaders talking about fake news, when there is no fake news, when they deny there are thousands of fires in the Amazon basin, you realise that there are there are issues when world leaders deny that we have climate change, we have a climate emergency in order to support those who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. You've got a problem. So how are we going to be positive? Well, I think the first thing I'd like to talk about today is COVID-19. Now, I know you've COVID-19 out. I know some of you will know people who are sick with COVID-19, especially if you live in the Melbourne metropolitan region, to a lesser extent in regional Victoria and other parts of the country. But I think what this pandemic has demonstrated to us is the complete lack of planning regarding the response. And what we've had is a reactive response, which has been about two to three steps behind the pandemic. And those people keep saying to us, well, it's a one in a hundred year pandemic. What do you expect us to do? Well, it's not a 100-year pandemic. Let's not forget that uh, in 2008, we had SARS in the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was similar uh, to COVID-19. Not as effective as COVID-19, but similar to COVID-19 in terms of coming from the same coronavirus uh, family. So we have, we're warned. Now, with increasing population growth, population of 7.2 billion, with limited resources, with increasing interaction with the uh, non-human world, you know, viruses, bacteria, insects, mammals, you know, reptiles, etc., etc. It's no accident that we're having more and more uh, uh, organisms cross the human 
animal barrier. And it and most and we've had many examples of organisms crossing the human animal barrier in the last fifty years. Obviously, things like HIV, Ebola, and now COVID nineteen, SARS. Uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, they're all examples of what can happen in those situations. And they're dangerous, as I've said before, for one very good reason, because there is no immunity in the population, there is no treatment, there is no vaccination. So if we've had all these warnings over the last 15 to 20 years, why haven't governments reacted? And to a large degree, they haven't reacted in any meaningful way, as far as Australia is concerned, and look... Various governments around the world are doing various things or have done various things. Some have done better than others. But I'd like to concentrate on Australia. The first thing I think we require, and I'm looking forward. I'm not looking backward. I'm not looking at the situation now. I'm looking forward. I think the first thing we require is a national pandemic resource centre, which is federally funded. That's the first suggestion I'd like to make. Now, all these, most of the suggestions I'm making are not new, but I'm just going to try to collect them into some type of a logical uh, argument. So a national resource, a national pandemic resource centre, which is federally and state funded. Now, this centre would have branches in every state and territory. Currently, although we're a federation, of states and territories, it looks like we're uh, nine independent countries trying to fight this uh, this COVID-19 crisis. You know, six states, two territories and a federal government. It's just ridiculous. No coordination, uh, little communication, although supposedly, you know, there was this emergency uh, uh, meetings they had with the premiers and the, and the prime minister, but little communication. This... Now, the National Pandemic Resource Centre would have a number of responsibilities. One would be to ensure that the public is educated regarding what to do in the in the event of a new pandemic. What to do? I mean, we're educated in terms of what to do with cyclones and floods and fires. And we've been educated to do this for a long time. And the response to fires, cyclones and floods are usually relatively well coordinated, although there were some difficulties during the fires over Christmas, New Year, January. So that's its first job, would be actually to coordinate a response, but not, first of all, in terms of educating the public what to be expected, what needs to be done. I think the second thing that we should look at is that we are told that we have a pile of personal protective equipment. Now, even now, in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis in Melbourne, there are still discussions regarding people not having enough personal protective equipment to provide uh, to provide uh, care for people. It's no accident that uh, the amount of uh, COVID-19 is quite high in healthcare workers who are actually providing service, providing care for patients with COVID-19. So it would be responsible for that. It would also be responsible for ensuring that we have we have uh, organisation in place and manufacturing in place and research in place regarding uh, conducting research regarding possible vaccines that the infrastructure is there, that people can go ahead today, 
today we have, you know, even in Australia, we have three or four different entities all trying, you know, to develop a vaccine independently of each other, which is which is crazy in a country like Australia. So some type of national research centre, which is there permanently regarding vaccines. I think the third thing we need to remember is that isolation is the key to um, good health care in a pandemic. Because if you've got no vaccination, if you have no treatment, the only thing you have isolation. Now, Australia, since colonisation began, established quarantine stations at every major port around the country. As people left Europe on ships to come to this country, some people got sick with yellow fever, malaria, smallpox, typhoid, dysentery. And when these ships came to a, a port in Australia, these people were offloaded into quarantine stations for treatment. Some died, some survived. But the key to spreading, stopping the spread of the disease in the rest of the community was quarantining. Now, if there has been one massive failure in terms of treatment, it's how isolation has been implemented in this country ever since March. Home isolation does not work. Hotel isolation does not work. And most importantly of all, isolating elderly people in nursing homes and not removing them from those aged care facilities when they develop COVID-19 is a recipe for a dis for disaster. And it's no accident that the mortality rate is increasing exponentially in Victoria in aged care facilities as I speak. And the reason is very simple, because decisions have been made not to isolate people, but to attempt to isolate them in nursing homes. Isolation by itself does not work. So what would we should be thinking about is like we think about with fires and cyclones. We have cyclone shelters in this country. We have an increasing number of fire shelters in this country. So something we should be looking at is the development of isolation care facilities across the countries where people who are diagnosed with the problem can then be isolated from the rest of the community. Obviously, with children, some members of their family may wish to be isolated with them. But this is something we need to look about, think about very seriously, isolation, isolating centres. I mean, the Chinese had a lot of success in the initial stages of COVID-19 by actually removing people who had COVID-19 from the situation they found themselves in into isolation centres. And if you want an example of what happens when you leave people in aged care facilities with COVID-19 to be treated and kept in isolation in an aged care facility, look at the situation in Sydney where we had the example of two nursing homes two major nursing homes where one had 19 deaths and people were isolated within the facility and another facility nearby where people were removed and put, placed in care, uh, the mortality rate was exceptionally small. 
that isolation centres should be part and parcel of a forward defence strategy. Now, it's quite ludicrous that we have a military forward defence strategy that um, costs billions, tens of billions of dollars every year in this country. You know, billions of dollars of submarines that are not going to work in 30 years' time, tens of billions of dollars of planes. It just goes on and on. It's called a forward defence strategy. But we have no forward defence strategy regarding pandemics. And what the idea of a national pandemic resource centre is to provide that forward defence strategy. Obviously, it would be staffed, uh, not just by uh, health people, but also by political representatives would be on that uh, defence and obviously also community representatives because we need some type of coordinated response. So I'll go through the, the three issues again. The first one would be isolation centres. The second one would be having facilities provide personal protective equipment for people. And the third one is our, our third one would be educating people and obviously providing facilities for research, ongoing research regarding uh, vaccination in these situations. Now, and the fifth thing I think is very important is the the establishment of a pandemic reserve. Now, we have an army reserve. We have volunteer associations like the Country Fire Authority in Victoria and other country fire authorities across the countries regarding fire. There are state emergency services across the country. And most of these services are staffed by volunteers. Obviously, there are some paid staff for coordination, but a large number of volunteers. And these are people in the community who come out to support the rest of us during periods of crisis. And I can't see why we should not have a pandemic reserve which is waiting and ready to be deployed in these situations because the lessons of COVID-19 is very simple. If you isolate quickly, you can contain the spread of the disease. You can minimise the economic damage. You can minimise the damage, the health damage to the community and to the community psyche, and the list goes on and on. So these are things that we need to think about. We need to create ministers for pandemics. That's right, state ministers, a federal minister for pandemics, and this should be part of a, you know, a forward pandemic strategy. I mean, we have a forward military strategy, we have a forward bushfire strategy, forward cyclone strategy, but no pandemic strategy. And if they want to weasel out of it by saying, who's going to pay for it? It's only going to happen in 100 years' time. Well, I'll tell you how you have to pay for it. It's very simple. It doesn't cost much, you know, to, to actually be prepared. I mean, we're supposedly to be prepared for war. We're supposedly to be prepared for cyclones and floods and fires and a lot of effort and energy and infrastructure and organisations are created. So how do we fund it? The first thing I'd suggest is a 2% pandemic levy on every taxpayer who uh, earns more than, say, $70,000 a year. A little bit like the Medicare levy. 2% levy, pandemic, It's uh, uh, that money is... Uh, 
is used specifically for, for, for research, setting up the organisation, setting up isolation centres, assisting the, the pandemic reserve and the list goes on and on. That's 2%. And that's now obviously it's not just a matter of taxpayers footing the bill. We've got to think about uh, other sections of the community assisting the community because if there's one thing we've learned about Australia during the last 40 years, during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution, is that gravity doesn't exist as far as money is concerned. It seems to flow upwards from the bottom to the top. There's no such thing as a trickle-down effect or even a trickle-down effect. Uh, what we've seen is more and more people actually not pulling their fare, not pulling their weight in this country. There's a lot of leaners in this country and it's not who we think the leaners are. It isn't the 30% of people on Social Security benefits. The leaners in this country is the corporate world. One third of our largest corporations paid no tax last year. Most of them paid voluntary taxation. Most financial transactions don't in, uh, uh, involve taxation. As I said last week, we've heard the business community carry on and carry on and carry on about the need to decrease company tax, have investment allowances, etc., etc. They want business as usual. Because, you see, there's not just a health impact with a pandemic, there's also an economic impact, which we're seeing today in terms of increased unemployment, in terms of billions of people on temporary wage subsidies, you know, called JobKeeper, in terms of uh, shops going bankrupt, in terms of businesses going bankrupt, in terms of, uh, you know, people who've built up a business over years, especially small business, being pushed out of business by regulation as far as COVID-19. So it's not just a human cost, there's a huge economic cost. And obviously there's this friction between the human and economic cost. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Because the stage four lockdown in the Melbourne metropolitan region. I'm not broadcasting from community radio 3CR in Melbourne. I'm broadcasting outside the radio station with the assistance of the staff of community radio 3CR. Obviously, there'll be technical issues. Obviously, the quality of the broadcast may not be as clear as you'd like it to be, but you can always access it by going to the, uh, to the podcast at 3cr.org.au. And just in case you're listening to this program uh, on a community radio station somewhere around the country, as the Atticus World This Week is broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network, let's not forget this is a particularly difficult time for community radio stations. And if you're a regular listener to your local community radio station, this is one time that you can actually uh, support them, give them a ring, email them, offer your support, see if they need any help, because community radio provides information and ideas, usually logical and reasonable, that uh, you won't hear in the corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC. This to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program's podcast, go to 3cr.org.au. A few sites, you can always leave a message on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 I will get back to you. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, 
Parkville 3052, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email me at anarchistpage at yahoo.com or info at pipsy.net. Not too cynical. I think that uh, political change is possible. Uh, Can't get involved in extra parliamentary activities. Well, I recommend you look at the public interest before corporate interest website, pipsy.net. Have a look at our policies. Join public interest before corporate interest. You can always download the application form from pipsy.net or you can ring me on 0439 395 489 and I'll send you out some application forms as I said before. We're trying to get 550 members of the Australian Electoral Roll to register as the Federal Political Party before the next federal election. Now, let's get back. Uh, and a few Facebook. You can go to my personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, or Toscano for the Public. You can go to Defend and Extend Public Housing, and the list goes on and on. You can also go to our YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, and I think they're also on Instagram, Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I, A-U-S. So there's lots of things you can do, especially during the COVID-19 lockdown, especially if you're living and listening to this program in the Melbourne metropolitan region, regional Victoria and other parts of Australia. Now let's get back to the economic consequences now. Disasters cause untold damage to individuals and families and communities in a capitalist society, because in a capitalist society, there is really no safety net. A response to a COVID-19 pandemic or any type of pandemic or any type of disaster should be based on the ability of each and every person living in the country having the resources to keep body and soul together. And as we've suggested constantly on this program over many years, what we need is the introduction of a universal basic income, a universal basic income for everybody. Very simple concept. A universal basic income provides protection against disasters. It also provides protection against the inroads of technology in society because as we can become more... um, you know, artificial intelligence, there's less need for human labour in a capitalist society. The way that labour is regulated is through a wage system or a social security system. So if we have a universal basic income for everybody, what that means is there is that safety net if, about, for everybody in the community. So although you may have a shutdown, economic shutdown during COVID-19 crisis, there is that those resources to provide people with the basic necessities of life, not the piecemeal approach we have today in this country with COVID-19, where some people are reasonably surviving reasonably well and others aren't, because there isn't a universal basic income. So how do you have a forward pandemic strategy based on the creation of Pandemic Resource Centre, a national pandemic resource centre, which can do all the things I uh, talked about before. How do you, how can you finance the universal basic income, which goes hand in hand with the idea of a pandemic na- national pandemic resource centre? Well, as I said before, the first one is a 2% pandemic levy, which is specifically effort on taxpayers, which is specifically designed to assist the financing 
of the National Pandemic Resource Centre. Now, the other measures which I'll be uh, discussing are based in the idea of providing the necessary resources for a universal basic income. Now, the first tax, and it's a taxation system, it's about people forcing governments to take the needs of the people they represent. See, what's happened over the last, well, it's happened for, for, time, in more, in more, uh, for time, for a long time, but in, especially during the last 40 years, what governments have done is they've got out of the way of business. They've got out of the way of the corporate sector and they said to them, you go for it, you make a profit, give us some taxes, keep people employed, and uh, we'll be happy. And at the same time, they've forgotten that they're there to represent the interests of the people. They're not there just to be the uh, puppets of the corporate and business sector. So if we want a reasonable society where the needs of people are taken care of, especially during a crisis, we need a universal basic income and we need them to step up to the plate and pay their fair share of tax. So one way would be by the introduction of a 1% stock market turnover tax. The Australian Stock Exchange was privatised some time ago. It is a private organisation. It makes profits which it returns to its shareholders. Last financial year, the Australian stock market turned over $1.5 trillion in cash sales. $1.5 trillion. A 1% stock market turnover tax would raise $150 billion, which would go about 30% of the way to providing a universal basic income. The second thing we need to look at is a financial transaction tax. Most large corporations avoid tax, some legally, some via dubious manners. They avoid taxation uh, through having clever accountants who find the chinks in the legislation and by having parliamentarians in place who support uh, their efforts. So if we have a 1% financial transaction tax, that means the Googles and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and you know, of the world will be forced to pay that tax at the point of sale. Very simple, a 1% transaction tax. The Amazons of the world, you know, these huge transnational corporations who divest themselves of the responsibility of paying tax. You can capture a lot of this money until you're about maybe 200, 250, 300 billion. So a 1% stock market turnover tax, a 1% financial transaction tax. These are things that we have to look at. The third thing is, I keep harping about this, is our natural resources, which are owned by this nation's First Nations people and the rest of us. It's extraordinary that of all the places in the world, I think we're the only place in the world which basically gives away our natural resources. It's no accident that the billionaires in this country are mainly involved in the exploitation of natural resources or uh, real estate speculation. But it's extraordinary. I would recommend that 50% tax be levied on resource. 
profits. Very simple. 50% tax. That would raise billions of dollars, especially as far as iron ore sales are going at the minute. We raise heaps of money, more than enough money for a, to pay for a universal basic income, to pay for a uh, national pandemic resource centre, you know, to pay for a national, you know, fire centre, and the list goes on and on. More than enough resources, but it's a matter of political will. And as I, when I first started the program, people say to me, "Well, Joe, what's the point? What's the point? There's no point. Nothing will ever change." Every time I hear somebody tell me that, I think to myself, of the efforts of millions, if not tens of millions of people that have come before us, people who are marginalised, ostracised, killed, imprisoned, for having the audacity to say that change is not only needed, but it's possible and it can happen. I mean, cynicism, the very antithesis of cynicism is hope. Hope is the, as I keep saying, the love child of desire and expectation, the desire for change and the expectation for change. You don't need military forces on every corner. You don't need that in order to keep a population subdued. You keep a population subdued by making them passive, by diverting their interests, by letting them think that change is impossible. And while as a, pop, as a community we think in this manner, change will be impossible. And that's why, as I said, I've been involved for a number of years now with public interest before corporate interest, because there are many ways of introducing change, especially in a social democracy, many ways of introducing change. Because change isn't just about revolution. Revolution is an interesting concept. But unless you have organisation on the ground, usually it's the men and the women with the guns that actually control what happens. And we've seen revolution after revolution fail. A few have succeeded, many have failed, as we've seen the people who eventually capture power during that uh, power vacuum tend to be those that have got the military force to capture that power. So there's many ways of actually uh, struggling. There's direct action, extra-parliamentary direct action. We see that all the time. We see that through protests. We see that through occupation and campaign. There's also electoral campaign. Now, I'm not stupid enough to think that Parliament will change things radically. But what we need to be able to do is capture people's imagination in terms of being able to change society. And we're not going to capture people's imagination by thinking that change is impossible. We need to capture people's imagination that change is not only needed, but it's possible and it can happen today, not tomorrow. So, so these are different ways of approaching the problem and it takes a different mindset. We are not beating, we are not marching to their drumbeat. We are creating our own drumbeat. And our drumbeat is based on the concept of creating a society without rulers, a society where you share power and you share wealth in order to provide the basic necessities for each and every one in a community, not just a minority. And that's what we have today. Think of what would happen 
what's going to happen in the next year or two as COVID-19 comes under control and we have to, we're asked to pay the economic price for what's occurred. Not the corporate sector, but you for increases in the goods and services tax. And this is the way the government is thinking at the minute. Well, let's move on. Mr Manicus will this week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, it's interesting what's happening in the Middle East. It's about, what is it, 85, 86 days before US state election. It's interesting to see the uh, uh, Trump administration attempting to cobble together a Middle Eastern strategy which is based on the concept of supporting one of the most evil feudal monarchies on the planet, the uh, Saudi monarchy, uh, and uh, in their uh, struggle against uh, the uh, mullahs in Iran. And it's quite fascinating what's happened in the last uh, few weeks, or the last few days. Not that we can change anything, but at least we can understand what's happening. Now, we've seen this power struggle in the Middle East between Iran and Saudi Arabia. We've seen the initiation of proxy wars all over the Middle East, and the latest proxy war has been in Yemen. And we've seen major democratic, major changes. We saw a half a revolution in Sudan a year ago where the military authorities were forced to take a backward step and set up an interim puppet government which they control. Now, I think it was a day or two ago, Pompeii, uh, the American, uh, the uh, whatever he is, he, he, he visited Sudan. You think to yourself, why would one of the most powerful men in the United States of America visit Sudan, an economic backwater, especially since the creation of South Sudan a few years ago with their loss of the access to many of their resources? Well, Sudan plays a pivotal role in what's happening in the Middle East today because Sudan has the people on the ground. The United Arab Emirates may have forged a, a peace with Israel and Jordan and East have formed peace treaties with Israel, but they are not in the position to actually impl- use their armed forces to implement order in the area. We've had this proxy war going on in Yemen for about the last four years, which resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of civilians. Tens of thousands of civilians in this proxy war. And it's been the Sudanese troops which have formed the backbone of the Arab Emirates Saudi Arabia coalition. I mean, you can have as many fancy chips as you like, you can send as many missiles as you like into civilian areas, you can destroy as many hospitals as you like and as many ports as you like, but in the day you need troops on the ground. And if there's one thing, the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates and the rest of the Middle East and truth uh, on that particular side can't provide is troops on the ground. And that's why it's essential that they need battle-hardened Sudanese troops who are involved in the atrocities in Darfur and the war in South Sudan. So it's no accident to see the Trump administration now fly one of their top people down to Sudan after going to Israel in order to attempt to get the Sudanese authorities to uh, support uh, their program in the Middle East by providing them with cheap loans because Sudan currently is on the tip of an economic catastrophe. I mean, I think it's important that we understand what's happening around the world because of the impact it's had on us because 
COVID-19 or COVID-19 or no COVID-19, life does go on. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Foreign investment. Today is the first time since the 1970s that there's been more Australian money going overseas, investing overseas projects to be invested in the country. And it's no accident that this is happening because we are in the midst of a capital strike in this country. I don't think people have noticed it because of the COVID-19 crisis, but there is a capital strike going on in this country. Transnational and multinational corporations are exploiting our resources, providing services, and then divesting their profits overseas without paying taxation, moving their profits overseas and investing them in uh, countries which, uh, for which they can get a better return because governments are much weaker and demand less from them. So we've seen investment flow, money flow out of the country by corporations who are making their money by exploiting resources in this country, whether it's iron ore, whether it's uh, gas, whether it's bauxite, whether it's uranium, whether it's rare earths, whether it's sand, minerals, and the list goes on and on, gold, um, silver, bauxite, gemstones, diamonds, and the list goes on and on. These are all resources which are extracted from the ground. And the resource sector has been making extraordinary profits, apart from the uh, coal sector, which is basically uh, slowly dying out. But they make extraordinary profits. But instead of investing money in this country, it's been invested overseas. And we've seen the superannuation funds, especially the industry-based superannuation funds, investing money in this country in order to maintain jobs. So why should corporations which make profits by exploiting resources in this country, whether it's in the agribusiness sector or the resource sector or the tourist sector, why should they be allowed to reinvest their money overseas? Another package of legislation that we should be looking at in a hurry is legislation which restricts corporations from investing say 50%, 50% of their profits and they should be reinvested in this country. And that would create huge amount of uh, employment, 50%. At the same time, we should also be thinking about creating a third tier to the Australian economy because currently we have a public sector and a private sector. We have a minuscule cooperative and collective sector isn't it time that the government provided seeding funding to cooperatives and collectives in order to create a third arm of the economy, an arm which is based on creating work and, 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 and providing services to the community? People in cooperatives and collectives don't get rich, but they at least have a sustainable work and at least they're providing services. So we should be looking at that area diversifying the economy, not just, you know, providing money to the private sector to continue on its merry way to make profits which are invested overseas. So there are many things. Now, 
to change is being active. Nothing that I've said today is a new idea. It's very hard to come up with a new idea, you know. But all I'm saying today is that we need to bring these ideas together. We need to join the dots. We need to see where power lies. We need to see why people are so passive. And obviously there's a number of reasons. One, the fact that most people are indebted up to their necks means that they're hobbled with a chain, a financial chain. So we need to look at different ways of providing basic necessities to get rid of, so people get rid of those chains. And what we've seen in the last 40 years with the speculation on real estate, we've seen the debts get bigger and bigger. We see the fear that people have if they lose their jobs because it's a real fear because the difference between poverty and living a reasonable lifestyle is six weeks' wages. That simple. If you didn't have JobKeeper, you would have unemployment rates of up to 30% currently, maybe even 35%, because whole areas of the economy have had to be closed down, especially in the Melbourne metropolitan region. So there's all these fears. And the way you overcome people's fears is to provide the basic necessities, and you provide those basic necessities for a universal basic income. So obviously there are many issues that we can get involved in. But what we need to look at is we need to bring those issues together because there are issues and there are issues and there are issues and you can spend the rest of your life, you know, jumping from issue to issue to issue to issue. But unless basic changes are made um, to the way we uh, govern ourselves and the way the economy is structured, these issues will continue ad nauseum. Now, capitalism, if there's one thing it can do, it's a quite dynamic force. It can incorporate most challenges. It could even um, structure a treaty with this country's Indigenous people. We saw the legitimisation, legal legitimisation of, uh, of, of, of a huge number of things over the last 50 years, but none of these campaigns have been based around challenging economic structures. And that's what we need to do. This is the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscana. I've been hosting this program. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Email me at info at pipsy.net or anarchistage at yahoo.com. Go to the website, anarchistmedia.org or or um, pipsy.net, download the application form, Facebook pages, Joseph Toscana, Toscana for the Public, Defending Extend Public Housing, Public Housing Everybody's Business, uh, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, Instagrams, Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I-A-U-S. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community station, courtesy of Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3CR Listen to the Anarchist Will this week on your local community radio station next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Will this week. 
Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.